Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. As with any election, there are winners and losers and Labor could still win a majority government and last I saw uh, had 73 seats of the needed 76 to achieve this. The Greens seemingly ran under the radar and might win as many as four seats in the House of Reps, a quarter of the crossbench, which has grown to 13 now. Uh, In contrast, the Liberal Party has had part of its heart ripped out. Um, So far, the Coalition has secured 51 seats and just 20 21 of those are Liberal Party as opposed to LNP or Nationals. George Megalogenis is a journalist, political commentator and author and a relatively regular voice here on Triple R and the Grapevine. And George, great to have you there. Um, I don't know, it'd be great to just hear your thoughts on, on what just happened. Yeah, where to begin? Where to begin? Well, everything happened and it all happened at once. It's probably the best take you could have on an election result like that. Uh, there was a fair bit, of, a fair bit of action on the Saturday night, trying to trying to view the story in terms of Labor teals, uh, independence more generally. But I think if you begin at the start, there was a government uh, seeking its fourth term, a government that had already sacked itself twice because it had rolled two of its own prime ministers, uh, Tony Abbott and uh, Malcolm Turnbull. A government that either side of Scott Morrison's elevation to the office of Prime Minister in uh, in, September, in August and September of 2018 never really had control of the floor of the Parliament, either before that election, before the 2009 election, or after it. So that government goes into goes into a campaign uh, fighting a war on every conceivable front uh, to its uh, to its left flank in the, in the capital cities. It has an uprising of independence uh, to its right flank in, in the regions. It's worried about the United Australia Party, Pauline Hanson and the like. And more generally, uh, a prime minister who was loathed, and you can't, you can't understate this, he was loathed by the women of Australia in particular. Now, when I was counting up the, uh, the uh, eligible uh, uh, the voters on the electoral roll, uh, people always talk about, you know, majority of the population is female. Well, we know that. 51.2% of all voters that went, uh, that either cast a pre-poll, uh, postal vote or voted on the Saturday were women, and they overwhelmingly voted to get rid of the government. And so that's, that's, that's sort of a top-line story. The second part of the story is how the electorate fractured. So whilst Labor looks like they may just get to majority, uh, the, the the two party system was, was clearly broken on Saturday night, and so you know the none of the above column, the uh, Greens, uh, in, Teal Independence, and other independents, regional independents, Bob Catter and the like, uh, their combined primary vote, uh, the first preference vote cast cast by the, the women and men of Australia, uh, is upwards of thirty percent. And that means that the primary votes of the two main parties, uh, Liberal National Coalition and Labor, is in the 30s as well. So when you've got when you cut when you divide the electorate uh, by thirds, uh, then it gets really really interesting. So that's 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 sort of my long short take on what yeah. happened on Saturday night. But I'd always begin these stories with the government, and the government got thrown out uh, by all parts of Australia, but for different reasons. 
Yeah, and I mean, there was obviously a lot of coverage of particularly the Teal independents and, you know, some other independents that were running in particular seats like Nichols that might pose a challenge to the Nationals. Yet still, a lot of the media coverage seemed to hone in on the sort of two-party preferred. And, you know, in the, the, the days just preceding the election, there was talk of polls tightening and, um, and you know, the, the idea that Labor should be pretty nervy about what might happen. But given the state of things currently, having a, a vastly expanded crossbench and, and, as you say, that vote of, um, you know, in inverted commas, professional women um, voting to, to turf out, particularly the Liberal Party in particular seats, how functional do you think this next parliament will be in, in, in addressing, you know, some of the, the many challenges that the country faces? Yeah, so is this parliament, so the question in 2022 after the experience of the last four terms, and let's begin with climate change, because climate change is obviously the top of mind issue for a lot of people, and it even was in the regions, by the way. So United Australia Party bombed in the regions uh, with all their, with all their uh, you know, coal-loving freedom talk. One Nation uh, vote went backwards in a lot of those um, regional seats as well. So let's, let's start with climate change. Mm. The story over the last four terms is, you know, going back to 2010, that minority Gillard government, which had a formal sort of power-sharing agreement with the Independents and, and the Greens, and remember in that parliament the Greens held the balance of power in the Senate, uh, that minority government uh, wasn't able to secure a climate... They were, they were able to legislate, but they weren't able to secure a climate change policy that survived a change of government. So that my top of mind question is, whatever climate change action comes out of this parliament, whether it's a narrow majority Labor government or one that has to negotiate with a crossbench, would that climate change policy survive a change of government? Whenever that change of government happens, if it's if, it, if they're a one-term or a three-term government, uh, uh, please hold me to this prediction. Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. It will survive a change of government because there's no there's now no path back to power for a Liberal and National Party coalition without taking back those seats that they lost. And remember, they, they were fighting, as I said, they are fighting wars on all fronts. They lost, they lost a seat in, and maybe two seats in Brisbane to the Greens yeah. along the Brisbane River, right? Um, they have no seats in Sydney with a harbour view today. Uh, they've basically been bumped out of Melbourne uh, just, you know, there's literally one, potentially just one seat in the, in the Melbourne urban area, which would be Aston, uh, which ironically is the Alan Tudge seat, and he didn't even put his head up during the election campaign because he, he, uh, he, had, his own, he had his own personal issues uh, and questions of propriety uh, going into the election. So... This is why I think the, the climate change story is a step change in this story, and this is a step change in Australia's engagement. Uh, I've got a second point which I'll raise in a second about the states and the territories. But you think about the political equation, the Liberal Party can't get back into power without picking up seats in the cities. There are literally not enough seats in the, in the sort of outer metropolitan and the sort of peri-urban and in the regions for them to defeat a Labor, the combination of Labor and, uh, and crossbenchers. So they can't govern their own right unless they find a way back into the cities. So they can't find a way back in the cities wanting to blow up a climate change policy like Tony Abbott did in 2013. As I said, it's 
that's the one you start with. There's a couple of others, but I'll let you ask a couple more questions. <laughs> well, I mean, so, there is so much to cover. Yeah, there, there, is, is. there is. And, I mean, if we hang around with, with climate just a little bit longer, though, I mean, Anthony Albanese was part of that government that, that put in legislation and so he's familiar with what then happened. Do you think that um, he comes in as Prime Minister with the, the kind of skill set we're going to need to to bring consensus or make it a decision of the parliament um, now when it comes to climate action, George? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think he does. I think he knows two... Th- I think he learned two things from 2010 to 2013. Uh, one, uh, we probably learned it before the 2010 election, don't change your leaders, so it's obviously in his interest not to get rolled at some point. <laughs> but I'll put that story to one side. He's clearly a Labor hero today. Um they had, an affor- they had a formal agreement that looked like the tail was wagging the dog in 2010 to 2013. So he's not going to have any formal agreements. He's already made up his mind about that, and he's made that clear ahead of time. It's Labor's policy that will, that will be put to the floor of the parliament. And in the negotiations in and around Labor's policy, uh, I wouldn't say if I were him, but I'm just saying, looking at his political, looking at his political as well as his policy interests, both align with some form of negotiation with at least the Teal Independents. Probably not the Greens, because if, if, if he cuts a deal with the Greens, it empowers the Greens in the city. So, from a Labor perspective, long term, that doesn't work politically, and it may not suit him anyway electorally in the long run to be to sort of go back to the future and to, back to 2010. But the deals are an interesting equation. So if they, if there's a position between the government's position and the Greens and the Teal sits somewhere in the middle, Albanese's incentives, both political and policy, is to cut the deal with them. And why would you cut the deal with them? Because you want to be able to send them back to the voters at the next election, because he talks about a two-election two uh, strategy. He needs to send them back to their, to their constituents for the next election to keep them in the parliament. Because there's no interest for those seats switching back to the Liberal Party because then it tightens the two-party contest. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, he, has to, yeah. he, he has to figure out a way to share power of the Teals without... And if you can cut the Greens out... So this, this is the chess game that they'd be looking at now. If you could cut the Greens out, whether you, want, whether, whether you should or not is a different is a question, but politically and probably in the policy sense for them, it serves their interest to, nego- to, to be seen to be negotiating across uh, traditional... Uh, lines of communication. And of course, once he negotiates with the Teals, then that incentivises the Liberals to come back to the centre. Yeah. Or maybe they just go crazy and go further to the right. So he holds all the cards. He's the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. And he went to the electorate with, believe it or not, with a, with a climate change policy, even though it's not as ambitious as any of the states and territories, and certainly not as ambitious to 2030 as, as the United States have moved. Biden hasn't been able to legislate, and, and weirdly, not even Boris Johnson, right? So we're sort of we're sort of a bit more tepid compared to the to to our, to our friends and allies. But he still took a policy that, at the end of last year, looked like a risk for Labor, and no pleasantly surprised on the upside that there was no electoral blowback from it. I think what they probably underestimated uh, was that there's a lot of work had gone into the ground between 2019 and 2022. Uh, to make climate change 
a vote switcher for action. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to, to see how that unfolds. And I mean, at this stage, obviously, you know, Labor still may win a majority in its own right. So sort of, you know, yeah. wait and see just to what extent they need to engage in these really... Um, uh, but I'd, yeah, but Dylan, I'd argue that even if he did have a majority in his own right, he needs the teal... He'd still do it, yeah. He, he, should, he should still do it mm. because how do you best how do you best reset people's expectations of politics, but but to, but to do something more than just getting your numbers over the line, uh, you know we we try to avoid uh, comparisons of the U.S. system, but they only work in the negative. So this mm. idea that the Americans have now gone so t- totally polarised that they don't negotiate across their so-called aisle uh, makes that country ungovernable. Yeah. And I don't think, especially if if you're in a third, a third, a third uh, electorate in terms of primary votes, uh, he's got to to negotiate. How does that work in the Senate from from where things currently stand, do you think? Because it looks like, you know, the Greens have picked up, I think, you know, a a couple more seats in the Senate. Do you imagine that, you know, negotiating with the Teals in the lower house and then, um, you know, putting up a bill for more ambitious climate action that might not go as far as as the Greens would like um, would would still pass at that level? Uh, So here's, here's where it gets interesting in the Senate. Um, if he if he can figure out a way to get lips to cross the floor, having having already secured passage for something in the House of Reps, uh, he then puts the Greens in that in that rather awkward position for themselves of having to destroy something. Yeah. To stop it from to stop anything from happening, because I think uh, Labor people are still bitter and twisted about two thousand and nine, uh, because when when uh, when Abbott took the leadership, uh, Rudd still put um, the emissions trading scheme to a second vote, you know, to give himself a double dissolution trigger, and the Greens, uh, you know, walked across and sat with the coalition, uh, you know, in the same way John Howard split the Republic vote. Remember in nineteen ninety nine. There's 55% support for Republic, but 10 who are direct electionists moved across to the no camp thinking they'd get a better deal next time. Labor is still bitter and twisted about the calculation the Greens made. This time around, the Greens uh, may feel purity in knocking back Labor's climate change action, but then nothing happens. And the problem with nothing happening is, is then the power vacuum is created yet again, this time around, it won't be picked up. It, let's go. Let's play the scenario. Around. This time, it wouldn't be picked up by uh, an emboldened Dutton-led opposition. What will happen this time is that the states and territories will just move on. So yeah. I think our, our powers, our, our power equation's been scrambled, but in a, in a really good way. Right? It's forcing people to think beyond the tribe, beyond their party room. Yeah, and, and, and look uh, for consensus and look for the, like, voting on the issues, which, uh, you know, really interested to hear um, George, George Mechelagendis is with us um, speaking all things, the, the election that we've just had. Um, if we can have a look at the states and the sort of state trends we saw in this election and uh, you're big on uh, demography and uh, we did <laughs> see, um, you know, obviously WA has gone um, very much a huge swing to the Labor Party in this election, but we've spoken with you previously about the role of Victoria in federal elections. Do you think that has just changed, uh, George, from one of not being that consequential to the outcome of a federal election to to being a little bit more consequential um, to the outcome of the election, or what would your take be? Yes, I think Victoria is certainly more consequential than... Well, this is the first election that Victorians have given the majority of seats 
uh, to the winning side uh, since 2010. So it's the first time, first time since 2010 where, where what Victorians wanted in the federal parliament turned out to happen on the floor of the federal parliament. Now, by that I mean, you know, a majority of uh, seats in Victoria went to Labor in 2013, 2016 and 2019 and had no bearing on the national result. Abbott, then Turnbull, then Morrison uh, won elections. Now, do you remember, we've talked about this a few times, the coalitions, the last two terms of the coalition, you know, had their one-seat and two-seat majorities. They were basically built in the region of uh, Queensland, so outside of Brisbane, and in WA. And in WA, WA is the only, uh, the only jurisdiction where, where the capital city as well as the region were majority liberal. So in all other capital cities in Australia, you know, sort of Labor, and that's, that's been the story for a few years. What, this, what happened in this election, and this is why I sort of have to temper my Victorian matters again, the same thing happened everywhere. Every capital city moved decisively away from the coalition, and the coalition in their, you know, in their grand strategy, and this is extraordinary um, military tactics if you think about it, um, if you think about it just in terms of military tactics, they abandoned the capitals uh, for the supposed moral high ground of the regions and we're expecting voters to do the following. Um, so in the seat of McEwen, outside of Melbourne, they wanted Labor voters in McEwen to see that Catherine Deves was on the ballot paper in Warringah for a G. <laughs> you follow my logic here? So yeah. what the, what the, they, 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 the might have, they might have seen that, but maybe made a different choice to what they might expect. Well, put it this way, certainly the voters in Curtin in Perth made a different choice because they were aware of it. I don't know if voters in the queue were necessary, but certainly certainly on all those teal seats. Uh, my, my thinking going into the election was a couple of the teal seats were, were gimmies, like Goldstein would, would, would go and then maybe and then maybe uh, one other. It turns out if one went, they were all going to go. So all six, all six went against the government. So so when you look at does Victoria matter, absolutely Victoria matters. We just mentioned earlier that the Liberals potentially are left with just one seat in um, in the uh, in the urban area of Melbourne, just Aston, potentially. They'll probably end up with three. There are none in Adelaide, none in Perth at the moment. Uh, either side of the Brisbane River, they're buggered now. They, they sort of, you know, you've got a, now a Labor and a Green heart carved out of the centre of Brisbane. So that part of Brisbane now looks a lot more like Melbourne and parts of Sydney than it does the rest of Queensland. Uh, I was always fascinated, I don't know if you've got a Brisbane background, um, you know, they've got their Brunswick Street, right? <laughs> In the West End. And it is... It, and half of half of those electorates now where it's Labor v Green... And remember, the Libs have lost two seats to either the Green or Labor, in so Brisbane and Ryan. And Ryan was a seat that only ever once went to the Labor Party in a by-election. So these are Federation seats that are, were always Liberal, like Higgins. And... Uh, now, of course, you know, if you blindfolded someone in Plumpton parts of Brizzy, you wouldn't know whether you were in Northcote or in Brunswick. Yeah. Is that because people have moved right? from um, Victoria? <laughs> I, I think some Queenslanders didn't like that characterisation that we've gone up there and, <laughs> and, and changed things for um, I don't heard. think so, but who, yeah. But in, in, in that case, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen a yeah, switch yeah, so, from a Liberal MP to, to Greens in, in Ryan. Um, and, you know, I mean, the Greens, I think, surprised a lot of people in, in the seats that they, they look to have, have picked up in this election campaign. But sort of switching to, um, you know, UAP and, and One Nation, George, and particularly yeah. in the context of what 
we've seen in Victoria. They, uh, you know, received some swings towards them, but lost out in places that they'd normally expect to do quite well. And um, there's been some commentary around, uh, you know, the Liberal Party banking on sort of anti-Dan Andrews sentiment in particularly out of suburban areas. Is there anything that you read into the results of of those kinds of parties in in particular areas in Victoria? Uh, So, yes, there there is an interesting story and Labor are worried about, and Labor are worried about two realignments occurring, uh, you know, right under their nose. One's obviously you know, the hand-to-hand combat with the Greens in, 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 in sort of majority left electorates in the cities. But out in the, out in the regions, uh, they worry about, and they should worry about this, um, that they've been safe, those seats have been safe forever. And if you live in one of those seats and you've seen the rest of the country blow up the system and make the system care about your local area, so the example of Fowler... Uh, in Sydney's West is a terrific is, a, is a actually a terrific story um, because Labor parachute in Labor parachute in someone from the Senate mm. uh, bump out the local candidate and an independent gets up. Yeah. So that's the, that's the thing. Whether it's specific to Dan Andrews or whether it's 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 more uh, more generic or more generalised feeling of being overlooked and forgotten. So I think our experience during the pandemic is not dissimilar to everybody else's. I know we had the extra lockdown and the rest of the country thought we, you know, it served us right. But Prime Minister and the Treasurer, the then Prime Minister and the then Treasurer were bagging, bagging the government and the people felt like they were bagging us. Uh, the sort of commonality in, in Melbourne and in Sydney, because Sydney obviously had a uh, later lockdown than we did, is that weird division between, um, you know, the class divide was just magnified. So people in the outer suburbs were still expected to do the frontline work. You know, they were still expected to deliver your meals to people in Turak. They were still expected to, 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 to be at the checkout to receive the abuse from customers. Uh, they were still orderlies. They were still doing the nursing. They were still doing the aged care. Um, but the lives that they lived out there, because everybody forgot about them, um, they also caught COVID, whereas you know people in the leafier suburbs, you know, got to got to re-experience their cities as they were, you know, during the marvelous Melbourne days. These beautiful walking cities, you jump on a tram, go to a park, uh, hang out with your friends, and you know what pandemic. So that's the that's the thing that's baked into you know, the backlash against Andrews may well be the idea that they'd forgotten the West, or they'd forgotten uh, the Northwest. Or the deep south. So that's that's. I mean, Nick Watson well aware of it. And level crossings is not going to fix not going to fix that particular problem for them this time. They have to they have to think about service delivery. They have to think about hospitals, childcare, and all of that came care. through. And I think you know, um, uh, uh, George Michelagendis is with us. And in the time we've got, still with you, George. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that. Uh, Anthony Albanese as Prime Minister and the Labor Party will have a two-election strategy here as they make some calls on how they work in the Parliament and so forth. Um, If we do think about the next election, even though we've just had this one and we don't have all the results yet, but um, looking at those primary votes and the electorates that you were just speaking of then uh, and being inspired by other electorates that were safe and now aren't and, and getting quite a lot of attention, do you think that will play into some of the Labor strategies to make sure that there's not an independence rise on well, in their um, 
term here uh, that we yeah, won't start to see independents in Labor-held seats? Yeah, I think they really do need to watch their base. Uh, it may, but it may not happen in, even in the next election because the, the other interesting subplot to the election we've, we've just had on Saturday night is that, is that the seats where Labor just fell over the line last election or previous election you know, in the Turnbull and um, Morrison elections. Things like uh, Eden Monero, which used to be the bellwether seat, um, you know, outside of Canberra all the way down to the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, that is now very safe Labor. There are a lot of those seats, there are a lot of those seats that were very, very marginal that Morrison was eyeing off and are now very safe. So Labor, in a funny way, has been able to convert what used to be tricky demographic you know, always lineball electorates have been able to convert them into safe. So in a funny way, they won't have the same stress on the, on the you know, the narrow end of the pendulum. And because, because they've seen the shocks on the, on the Liberal side, they, they now have to start thinking across the board. And look, the Labor government, theoretically, it should be easier because you have to begin with some service delivery. So how else do you look after working-class people? You make sure that the services on the ground are the equal of the services in the in the wealthier parts of the in the sort of better better served parts of the city. Uh, you know, yeah. if their work's insecure, you want to make it secure. Um, it may not be possible to do it within three years because there are structural issues, and they do intersect obviously in the federation with a lot of state responsibilities. Uh, but you want to be at least starting this conversation, and, and you I mean- want to be actively doing it. And by the way, there is there is um, so this has been done before. So each of those state governments uh, along the eastern seaboard that always that just fell over the line the first time around, you know, going all the way back to the nineties with Beatty, uh, you know, the old BBC Beatty, Brax and Carr in uh, sort of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Remember they they won those elections when Howard was prime minister, uh, either a minority or just with a small majority and then built supermajorities in the second or third term. And part of that was built on the back of the destruction of their opponents. You know, their opponent completely lost their mind in opposition. Uh, so it's possible... But the difficulty is obviously this third party. Yeah, and it's it's. I love that you take us back through history, George, because it is you know so important to remember these precedents at particular times. And you know, notable too that Albanese has said you know one of the first things he wants to do is get um, the state and territory leaders together in the same room to nut out a plan for for sort of managing the, the current stage of the pandemic. But Albanese has um, you know spoken about changing the country um, recently. And, and this is despite, I suppose, what might be or has been characterised as a fairly small target strategy in the campaign. It, it feels, to my mind, less sort of bold and ambitious than we saw with, with Rudd when he was elected in 2007. And, and certainly what um, you know, the Bill Shorten-led opposition took um, to, to the country in 2019. But given the, the complexion of Parliament at the moment, and I suppose you know, thinking about um, previous elections in, in the past where a government has come a party has come to government from a long term in opposition. Um, what kind of a mandate do you think that an Albanese led Labor government has to make sort of really bold, significant changes o- over the next uh, term of parliament? Well, I think, I, I think the electorate already told them they want them to be bold. And the reason the electorate has told them that is the electorate hasn't taken out any, any blocking insurance. Like it hasn't. It hasn't uh, you know, kept a viable opposition. In fact, it's 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 it has done this consciously. It's not unconscious. It has consciously destroyed the Liberal 
and national parties in the way they conducted, you know, based on the lived experience of how they've conducted themselves the last three or four terms. So they've gone out of their way uh, to render that side of the old two-party system, uh, you know, useless at least for a term or two. So what is the electorate telling them? The electorate is telling them that two-thirds of the country wants to move on. So two-thirds of the country wants stuff done on climate change, and arguably even in the regions they want something done on climate change. Two-thirds of the electorate wants stuff done on aged care and on child, all the things that Albanese talked about. Now, bear in mind, there's two things to, there's two things to remember about Albanese and why, and also this is where the history comes into it. As a, as a witness to the, uh, to the promise and then rapid um, disintegration of the Rudd and Gillard government, it, there's a whole lot of things that he learned then that he's not going to repeat. So one of them, he's not going to centralise power in a gang of four. Uh, do you, you remember during um, the global financial crisis? The kitchen cabinet. For the, for yep. the, yeah, yeah. For the purposes of dealing with the crisis, the uh, Prime Minister, Deputy Leader, uh, Treasurer and Finance Minister, so Rudd, Gillard, Swan and Lindsay Tanner. But then that, pro, that, 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 that became too comfortable for them and then they just didn't consult with anyone even in their um, cabinet, let alone their caucus, and they got blinded for whatever, you know, blinded to what was coming next out there. They should have comfortably had a second term, but they obviously couldn't pull it off. So I know for a fact that Albanese doesn't want to go back to Gang of Four. Uh, and of course, but he's watched Morrison do the same thing. He's watched Morrison uh, at his best during the early stage of the um, pandemic when he shared power the, with the premiers and chief ministers and then revert to this government of one thing that he was doing the last couple of years, all these blue-collar dress-ups for the news every night. You know, I'm a tradie today, I'm a, you know, I'm a truck driver tomorrow and, um, you know, I'm waving, um, waving racing cars on, on day three and then crash-tackling kids on day four. Uh, Albanese doesn't want, to, doesn't want to fall into the trap of thinking that they... And he knows this from from Rod and Gillard. We won. The country is ours. It doesn't really matter now. We'll just do what we want. So he, that's the, that's one thing. The other thing is the, is the immediate lesson of 2019, which was too many ideas, too complicated a narrative, fighting fighting too many arguments on too many fronts. He'd thinned down their agenda, but he has because his agenda is thinned down, and through the repetition of it, you know, being about a better better future. It does give them permission to do uh, more creative stuff on a no surprise, in a weird way, on a no surprises basis for the electorate. Because what you'll be telling the electorate after sort of 10 years of nothingness in Australian politics, that gridlock, here's an idea and watch me get it done, or watch me A, get it legislated, and then B, will follow through and get it done. I think, I, I think that part of it is going to serve them better than anything else. It's just the, it's just people were ready for a better idea. A better way of doing things, and also maybe and maybe stick away from um, housing policy, and that's certainly something that Jason Clare, who was a spokesperson yeah. for the ALP through the elections, like nup. We we went twice to elections and we lost both times mm. when it comes to housing reform, which will disappoint gonna, yeah. some, but that's the reality. Just um, in the the minutes we've got left with you, um, George, what do you? think of the role of the Murdoch media, um, not only just through this election, but into the future, because it seems, again, that, you know, they, they seemingly sort of campaigned almost for uh, the coalition to be re-elected here. I mean, you know, people could argue on that, but that's what it seemed like. Certainly, um, they were very prominent in their criticism of, of the, the Teal candidates. You know, have they been at all consequential in this 
election, um, do you think, or what do you think their role might be under an Albanese government as well? Um, uh, be interested so in your thoughts. Yeah, I think, which ones do you want to talk about? I, I don't want to talk about Sky because I haven't been no, watching just Sky. No, I just think mainly campaign. the major dailies because I think, you know, yeah, my yeah, observation but... was that um, there was, you know, a lot of similarity across all of those major dailies through this election. Yeah, so let, if we can talk about the tablets, I, I've got to obviously we sort of redeclare it for the, for the listeners. Uh, I started out at the Herald and Weekly Times as a cadet for the Melbourne Sun. And then Murdoch took over at the end of that year, 86. And when I went to Canberra in 88, I was the economics correspondent for the News Limited Morning Papers group. So the then Sun, which became the Herald Sun, Daily Telegraph, Courier Mail, Hobart Mercury and Adelaide Advertiser. So I'm very familiar with that, with those mastheads. Uh, it isn't just this election, though. It's, it was the case in 19, 16, certainly in 13. Remember the day that the election in 2013 was called, I think the Daily Telegraph ran this page one, kick this mob out. Mm. So there clearly has been, you know, a, a sort of political leaning in the tabloids. They're all tabloids now, a couple of broadsheets in the 80s and 90s. So there has been a, clearly a political leaning, but you have to ask yourself, has any of it ever decided an election? Now I'm told uh, by Liberal Party people who measure these things but the Daily Telegraph, for instance, in New South Wales, ceased to be a relevant factor in politics in terms of its readership uh, as long ago as long ago as '98, the '98 election, which is the GST election, and and even even before the sort of disintegration of mainstream media with the sort of disruption of um, you know the technology disruptions of internet and then you know having basically the entire globe's media on in, in the palm of your hand on your smartphone uh, ethnic media for example has has a greater influence in in say sydney than the daily telegraph does and why would that be? Well, two-thirds of the population of Sydney is either born overseas or has at least one migrant parent. So that makes sense. And, you know, similar stories in uh, in Melbourne. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the Adelaide and the, and the Brisbane markets. And certainly in Murdoch's obviously not in WA, but you see there's always a different story than told in WA. So whatever it is that tabloids thought they were doing, long ago it wasn't working. But the tabloids still have this thing, and this is probably where the Australian also comes into it. Unfortunately, and this is, you know, as I said, having declared all my previous professional interests in this, unfortunately what, what they've managed to do, even though no-one can, can quantify what their impact in the real world is, because we don't think there is much, and why would there be? Because they're not mass circulating dailies anymore. Uh, why... Sorry. Their impact, and this is, again, now I'm going to go back to some of my liberal contacts. The thing that really annoyed, and I wouldn't even call them moderates in the Liberal Party, the thing that always annoyed people who wanted to get things done uh, in the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments was they would they would turn on the television in their office in Parliament House and one of their one of their backbenchers on Sky yelling. They'd pick up a, a paper and, and one of the commentators is yelling at them. And the Whilst they didn't have much sway with the with the readership, they did have a disproportionate sway in the party room. And the other one, and this almost a, I'm almost burying my lead here, the ABC unfortunately tended to take tended to think, well, if that's what they're doing, maybe we order mm. maybe we order uh, at least acknowledge 
what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that's where the poison, I think, is in the... Um, it's not... You know, we put Murdoch and all them and all the conspiracy theories to one side. The poison is in that little um, sort of circular firing squad of, you know, one group of papers that want to influence politics and then politicians and other media thinking, well, even though we can't prove that they've actually had an impact at the ballot box, they're sort of still noisy, so maybe we ought to... We got to echo at least some of what they're doing. So I, yeah. my advice, my advice to my good friends at the ABC is go so far up market that you don't even have to think about them again. Well, it's been... and my advice to the, my advice to the tabloids would be get back to the communities. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been more than any election campaign that I can remember. There's been so much um, uh, criticism and and uneasiness with some of the, the media reporting this time around. Not just about you know those quarters of the Murdoch um, Murdoch media that we might expect you know heavily partisan um, approach, but also from some of the coverage from the ABC doing some of those things that, that I think you've touched on. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in this next term of Parliament. I think I saw you know Sky you know advocating heavily for um, you know sort of a for the Liberal Party, Liberal National, to move further to the right um, with the next leader that, that they appoint. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. But um, it's been so great having you once again um, on the show this morning, George. Um, really appreciate your analysis. And, you know, I'm sure you are one of the many people whose attention was split between the Dreamtime game and the, the tally room. So. Uh. It was. You picked that in one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, really, really value your insights once again, and we'll, um, we'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I'm um, speaking with Heshkan Gumush, an expert on Turkish democracy, speaking all about the um, recent news that uh, President Erdogan is seeking to block uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. They've formally submitted their applications, and um, President Biden has said that, that he very much supports that. But um, but to join NATO, you need 100% of members to, exactly. to agree. Yes, to, yeah. to, 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 to be unanimous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they hold quite a lot of power in, in, in this situation. But, I mean, in the context of, of the, the crisis in Ukraine, obviously, you know, Ukraine wanted to join NATO and, and the US said sort of no, but there's been a lot of commentary around the role of NATO in today's sort of geopolitical context. And, I mean, what's your sense of how that relates to the situations that's unfolding in Ukraine with other countries seeking to join the alliance um, and the, the sort of complicated politics as well that you've just outlined in relation to Turkey's role within the organisation? Well, I mean, the reason that Russia gave for, uh, what the Russian administration gave for invading Ukraine was uh, based around defence, that you don't, um, that you want NATO at their doorstep and and a European or pro-EU and pro-NATO Ukraine was was going to be uh, a threat to them. By invading Ukraine, what it's done is it's done the opposite where we're seeing a, a Sweden that's had a and Finland that's always had a, a very a pro-neutral uh, stance especially in trying to balance EU and Russia Russia's uh, worries that have always uh, refused to join NATO or refused to uh, act in a way that might be deemed aggressive by Russia it's actually done the opposite now where uh, predominantly majority of people and, and their governments have now said, no, actually, this is a really threat to us now and we're going to seek um, alliance with NATO 
to to stop that from happening or to avert any threats from happening because this has been this I guess Putin and uh, and his administration have uh, threatened Russia uh, sorry Sweden and Finland throughout this period as well that mm. if, if they go down this road this is going to be seen as a, as a threat to them and they'll be open to attack so which is really hurried Sweden and and Finland's process into um, applying for membership for NATO. Yeah, look, I don't know if this is um, even relevant, but, uh, you know, back in the early 90s, I travelled to Finland and and Estonia, my family background in Estonia, and the difference in um, attitudes towards Russia were quite different in those countries because, you know, one had been in the uh, Soviet Union for for some years and, and, um, and Finland was definitely even then quite neutral so and it shares this massive long border with russia i mean and russia is enormous exactly yeah. uh, it seems huge that they're they're seeking membership of nato um not just a yeah a, a flip out of this neutrality um seems like a really big step to, to me it's massive and, and it's galvanized europe and nato i think putin miscalculated uh, uh i guess the alliance nato and eu as well and didn't think they would be strong enough or united enough. There'll be, there was too many fract- uh, fractures within between between member states and EU and NATO, but it, it actually had the opposite effect. It actually galvanising effect that this attack. So what it's also done is it's created much more nationalism within Ukrainian population, and I'm guessing probably bordering um, countries where that would have been because there's a lot of Russian-speaking people, especially in Ukraine. There would have been affinity towards Russia or empathies towards it, but now what we're seeing is is, is an explosion of nationalism. This this is we are Ukrainian, and a lot of people that speak Russian are refusing to speak Russian. That was the same Ukrainian. in Estonia yeah, exactly. in, in the nineties. Uh, people who had grown up speaking Russian because um, they they needed to yeah. were refusing to learn or refusing to speak it. And then, interestingly, um, those and it's only anecdotal this, but. Later, they regretted it because they actually have, you know, family connections mm. across the border and um, economic opportunities and a whole lot of reasons why they yeah. might want to speak the, the, the language of the neighbouring country. But that it, it is actually um, a response is, um, that course, has been course. there before yeah. as well. Um, and yeah. we, we see that the, the quickest way to uh, for people to be nationally or conscious of their nationalism or, or patriotism is when there is a war or where there's an attack by external, uh, there's an external threat. It's, it's something that's, I guess, inherent to us as human beings. It's tr- very tribalistic. But that is, I mean, when we look at our own, you know, we use World War I, Gallipoli, as in Australia as being, you know, the birth of our nation. It's, it's a very, it's essential to the national identity of Australia. In Turkey, it's the independence war in the 1920s against the Western powers. This is, a, this is, I think, it's, it's a very rational decision that when you attack a country because you see it as you don't want it to sort of turn to its neighbours um, in the West, it actually does the opposite. It's, it's, it actually hastens that that um, that turn, yeah, that, is, that escape or or that alliance to to the opposing side. Yeah, and and you mentioned that that Erdogan, you know, often in these pronouncements on the international stage, he's he's speaking very much to a domestic audience Massive, in these cases yes, yeah. and that there's an election coming yeah. up next year as well. So do you, do you think we're likely to see more of these efforts and and performances I suppose on the international stage that might seek to position Turkey as, you know, under siege or having to of really course, go in yeah. against um, particular countries? Yeah, this is where populism 
is brilliant at, uh, uses these opportunities, uh, picks, targets these opportunities and, and creates this massive crisis around them or impending crisis, uh, whether real or not. And Aradon will definitely continue because previous has always worked. Um, mm-hmm. He's always picked fights with the West. Uh, previous elections, he's picked fights with certain European countries. And that galvanised his support base. Oh, look at look at our grand leader, like just taking it up to the to the west. It's always had it in for us. That's always had, tried to undermine us. Mm. Um, so I don't see that from stopping at all because it's 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 proven success. But I also see the repression in Turkey increasing because his um, popularity, his government popularity, is also slipping um, away from him as well. You know, um, I mean. Dylan, actually, do you have any more questions about Turkey? Because I was going to flip locally. Flip to, away. Okay. Um, so, I mean, interestingly, you know, you're, you're part of the Migration Council now, and we've just had a federal election, and mm. we, we saw the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, making, um, you know, talking about his surname, Albanese, mm. and that the leader of the government in the Senate is is Senator Wong. And, um, and I wonder, you know, he was... I think very proud Anthony Albanese about his cultural background and that here we are, this is a change for Australia uh, in many ways, a migrant nation. Uh, You know, do you get a sense that that is going to uh, mean something to, you know, large groups of, you know, the huge um, number of, of migrant communities in Australia, Tess? Yeah, of course. I think we, I, I, I read somewhere on Twitter that he's, a, was it on Twitter or was it on news, that he's the first non-Anglo-Saxon prime minister that we've had. He's Italian. He's a, I mean, he's like us, or like me or whoever, his first genera- migrant generation. Um, and he grew up with a you know single mum, social housing. Uh, that's massive. And, and when you know where it comes from, that is a huge thing. So him through his experiences in life is always going to have empathy for social causes you would think anyway that someone that is psychologically has knows this the struggles of, of working class or migrants very well so i think i do see it as a very important step i think it's a very it, it's something we need to look at as a successful migrant story we need to celebrate it uh, that on itself and i really do hope Yes, exactly what he said. You know, he's trying to change the face of government, the way government does things, more inclusive, softer, softer government, um, more relatable. And I think that he, him, with his surname, with his background, definitely can be, you know, lead that change. And I'm very proud of him. I mean, I completely understand when he talked about his name, was always teased. You know, I mean, this is something I grew up being teased about my name, you know, Tezcan. And, you know, we won't get into the whole <laughs> derogatory terms that were, you know, expressed because, you know, uh, in relation to my name growing up. But there was always a stigma. I felt a stigma about my name. So when you've got the Liberal Party teasing him because of his surname, it actually, you know, touched something within me. And I'm sure a lot of people that grew up with foreign names, you know, us, you know, what we were the 80s and 90s or 70s as wogs, you know, sorry to use that term, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because that there was that really prominent, uh, I assume you're, you're talking about those billboards that won't be easy under Albanese, yeah. that, that one. Yeah. I, I wondered if that would bother people because I noticed it. I was like, whoa, okay, that's yeah, exactly. yeah. Is that okay? I mean, yeah. You no. Know, I mean, it just shows that, you know, I've not got, I don't want to sit there and bash the liberals and nationals or whatever, but, you know, it just shows how distant they were um, from, I guess, 
public sentiment or, or from migrant communities that, you know, these lived experiences that we've always had our name teased about. So to use it as like a campaign slogan, it, it really, you know, touch something within us in a negative way. Yeah, and I mean, you are an expert on, on Turkish democracy. That's why you're here today. But yes. you also wrote a, a recent piece about Australia's democracy being eroded under the previous coalition. Yes, I did for a Turkish platform, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm just wondering, we, we you know spoke at length with George Megalogenis just before about what this election means and, and what it might mean for sort of policymaking and all the nuances of, of how particular seats have fallen and so on. But are you hopeful that Australia's democracy could be strengthened through the current parliament that we're looking like having? Yeah, if I mean when we look at the um, parliamentary makeup, we, we know we have a, it's not all the seats are counted and, and finalised, but it's a much more plural um, makeup. Greens, you know, have uh, got a few seems to in, especially in Brisbane, Queensland, I've picked up a few seats. You know, the teal independence, but also independence. So, um, you know, when we saw Christ, Christina Cornelia lost her seat um, in Western Sydney to a local candidate from Vietnamese background, you know, someone what we would term as a boat person that arrived in, in, a, in a early life, probably in the 70s or 80s, um, by boat uh, to a local candidate. So you've got these very diverse voices. It, you know, it can be much more diverse and multicultural, our, our parliament, for sure. But we are taking uh, more uh, direct steps towards that. And I think that would that's going to inform our policy to be more sensitive to the needs of, of migrant communities, low socioeconomic communities, um, uh, and people who have been left out of policymaking, their voice has been left out of policymaking for a number of years, especially under the Lib- national government. So um, I do see it in a, a very good step towards re-strengthening uh, our pillars of democracy um, under yeah. the current government, especially if they have to share power with independents and grants. I think that's a fantastic thing for democracy because it means much more diverse voices for legislation and policy. Yeah, we're into optimism. Yeah, we are. And I did have to say about the, the multi-language, um, that there was a, a, a candidate elected over in WA who speaks 10 languages. And I think, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, is, it is a different makeup yeah, of this parliament. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's see so what very, plays yeah, out. So it's real hope. You know, I think going back to what uh, Obama's political campaign, what was it, 12, 10, 12, 2007, Eight, 2008? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're living through that. And Australia, I, sh- I think Australia should be very proud that we've bucked the trend in not falling for populist or right-wing rhetoric or governments. Uh, we've actually gone the opposite. We've, we're smart enough to see through that and, and, um, and the trap of that and pick the more, I guess I would call a left-leaning uh, uh, parliament. Majority. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. Means a lot. Yeah, had a really great chat with um, Adrian Moffat and and Malcolm Middleton, who together make up Arab Strap, the Scottish outfit, who's been putting stuff out since um, since the mid-90s. They had a, a decent old break, 16 years between um, albums, but uh, they are back. They've got a fantastic album out from last year called As Days Get Dark, and they're coming our way, playing as part of Rising Festival on June the 3rd. Um, there's still tickets available for that one at the forum. So you're going to hear kind of a half an hour chat I had with those two and a few um, selections from the album as well. And they actually touched on Kendrick Lamar's new record as well, So who we heard from just earlier. So I'm going to go into this chat with Arab Straps um, from As Days Get Dark, Compersion Part 1. I 
online a recording from the punters club in melbourne which is a venue that's long since closed down uh 2001 i think it was you played there and you started the set with uh hi we're arab strap and we're really tired because your clocks are wrong (laughs) (laughs) that sounds about right yeah yeah i'm a bit worried about that especially i mean if that's how i felt 20 years ago you can imagine at this point in life i think the (laughs) The jet lag might be a bit harder. But then again, I'm a yeah. Nighthawk anyway, so I might not even notice. Who knows? Yeah, I think yeah. jet lag's horrible, but they must have some cure for it now. I, always, I heard someone we'd interviewed in telly once and said to rub bananas behind your knees. Bananas what? behind your knees? <laughs> yeah, something to do with the melatonin maybe, but I'm not sure if you're supposed to unpeel them or just, who knows. Surely you'd be best just eating them. 
It was something about behind your knees. That's what I, I heard a celebrity <laughs> on the news talking about it or something. Oh, so, was it yeah, Gwyneth I mean, Paltrow? I don't think she was around 20 years ago, was she? Well, she probably was, but she wasn't <laughs> yeah. giving advice. I mean, I'll try anything, but I... At the time of, of the release of 10 Years of Tears back in 2006, you announced that the band was done. Um, in a press release, you were quoted, Aidan, as saying, there's no animosity, no drama. We simply feel we've run our course. And, you know, fast forward 16 years, you've got a brilliant album, very widely acclaimed. What changed for you guys? Well, there's no animosity, no drama. We just thought we'd do another record. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think playing was what it spurred us on. We did anniversary gigs in uh, 2016, and uh, we really enjoyed them, and the band sounded great. And then that led to us doing more shows in 2017. And I think we just felt that, um, I mean, everybody with it, you know, we were better at what we were doing. The, the people who were playing with us were better. You know, they all had more experience and stuff. And I, I think we wanted to just keep it going. We really enjoyed playing. And then in order to do that, I, I think we felt we had to make a, a record. I didn't want to just play the old songs for years. You know, I, I don't want to be a, a heritage rock band, <laughs> you know, just, you know, are those, we get, we get, we got some good offers actually from those festivals that are sort of nineties throwback things. So, you know, you get, um, all, all these bands who I normally love, you know, but all in the one place, playing at this one wee festival at a campsite somewhere by the beach. And that's exactly what I didn't want. You know, I don't want to be part of this nostalgia festival sort of thing. So I we had to, we thought we'd try some new stuff. And um, I we took it for there. I think knowing that we had a, a band that could play what we were doing and we had the better technology, I think sort of inspired some of the, the way we made the album too, you know, I think we had, there's a lot more on the album than there used to be, you know, it's a lot less sparse than uh, the earlier stuff, but I think that's because we knew we could pull it off live, unlike unlike before. Yeah, I think it goes back a wee bit further. I mean, in 2000, even 2010 and 2013, I think we'd started, someone had said about doing a film soundtrack, like not as Arrow Strat, but as Aidan Malcolm, so we'd been doing like some demos and it was, kind of obvious from the start there was still something interesting there that, to work together that we could do so that's kind of a wee bit before the red open was split up in 2006 we kind of made a joke in the pub the same day we went for a, a pub crawl to split up and uh, we said let's get back together in 10 years time to celebrate splitting up so we're celebrating splitting up not not <laughs> being a band or getting together it's like that was kind of weird way of doing it <laughs> and, then we got and um, I mean, how how quickly did it all start coming together for As Days Get Dark? I mean, did you just begin jamming and seeing where things went before committing to an album? Or did you find that, you know, once you got together, the creative juices really started flowing for, for some new material? I think it seemed to take up probably like 2017. I think it was after we did the gigs, the festivals and stuff. And uh, it didn't really, it came quickly, but there was no rush. That was the thing, because we hadn't said we're doing a record. We just announced we're doing these comeback gigs and then festivals. And then we had like an open-ended schedule for doing it. So what did that take us, like four years? Just sending stuff back and forward. And Yeah, I mean, it wasn't constant work, though. It wasn't like we were, you know, working on this one thing. I was I was touring. I was, I'd been in a record with R.M. Hubbard, so it, and Malcolm was doing his own stuff. So it was kind of... You know, it was there. It was just things we were doing when we had time, and you know, it wasn't like 
four years of intensive work or anything like that. You know, it was it was just something that we chipped away at as we went along until we had something uh, substantial. And then, you know, when we felt we were ready, we, we spoke to Rock Action about doing the record. And it all happened pretty quick after that. The recording, we were, we were halfway finished, actually, uh, when the pandemic started. So, in fact, maybe more than halfway. We had certainly... Writing-wise, we had yeah, we were, we were pretty far into it. Up, yeah. yeah, I think we had a, a bit more to record, but the writing had been pretty much finished by then. So, um, I and then obviously that put us back a wee bit. Not much, actually. Maybe about six months. We decided just to get it finished. So as soon as there was a window in the studio where we could get in uh, and start working again, you know, because it was closed for like four months, I think. So but as soon as it was open, we went back in and just got it out during the pandemic, which was good because I kind of, well, we, we kind of knew everyone would be doing a pandemic record because people are just sitting about the house bored. So it was good that ours was almost finished so we could get it out during the pandemic because, again, you know, I, I, like musicians, everybody else was sitting about the house bored. So it was actually a, a a really good time to release a record, I think. You know, I think a lot of people, it took people by surprise and it was, um, you know, you had, there was quite a, uh, attentive audience back then because you know there were no gigs, there were very few records coming out. So um, I think we got the timing uh, very right there. But we're very lucky, I think, to have it all ready to go just before that happened. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it it's become almost impossible not to read the pandemic into sort of every album that's come out over the past couple of years. As day gets dark, yeah. seems to just <laughs> conjure so many feelings related to the pandemic and, you know, lots of, of dark things, I suppose, that have been happening in the world of late as well. And I suppose your music's always had a, you know, a sense of, of nihilism, a reckoning with sort of the ugliness of life, but also the struggle to find beauty and, and pleasure and, and the really sort of beautiful aspect of that as well. And I wonder how you reflect on the fact that this album has resonated so strongly. I mean, do you think that says something about maybe the, the circumstances that the world is in at the moment? If you mean has the world suddenly turned around to the the dark and desperate place that we always <laughs> sang about? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think so. I mean, it wasn't intended that way. I actually remember, I mean, we talked about not calling it as days get dark because we thought it was a bit too on the nose at the time, but the title was decided before that, you know, and then it was kind of like, well, maybe this is just a bit too, I don't know, you know, people people want escapism probably, but... Um, yeah, I think people want to get out of the four walls that they're in for the, during the pandemic lockdown, but it's, it's not annoying, but I think I'm all... I'm kind of wary for people to think this was somehow a, a lockdown album because, as Aidan said, it wasn't. We were just finishing it. <laughs> and uh, whenever I, I see bands coming out just now with their lockdown record, it's like, oh, fuck off. It's, to me, it doesn't... It's like I want something wider than someone's room when I'm listening to music. So, But, yeah, this was about the, I don't know, self-imposed lockdown before any pandemic of just your own mind and your own stuff and whatever. <laughs> I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. No, that's... <laughs> No, I think so. Do you know, I don't know. I mean, there is escapism in the record, though. You know, obviously, it, a lot of the songs are about um, fairly dark and intimate things, but that's the, the thing with writing songs. If sometimes when you're writing about the the personal details and you write about, you know, minute details, you're actually writing about a, big, a much bigger picture because you're writing about things everybody goes through and everybody relates to. So, um, you know, I think I think there's, a, there's certainly a, a comfort 
perhaps that people found in the record maybe that you know there's always someone worse if only one of us had died of covid at the end for the last summer or something. <laughs> a very dramatic way to go out <laughs> Yeah, but that's sort of the, the the beauty of what I think people have found in your music for so long. It's the the honesty and the truth that that's revealed in the lyrics and in the music, and and all the feelings that 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 conjures. Coming back to this project after you know at least ten years of stepping away from it, and as you said, doing your own thing. How does your collaborative process work? Is it much the same as it, as it was in the past, or did you come to it with a a new kind of fresh sense of of approaching Arab Strap and what it is that each of you bring to it? Oh, it's pretty much exactly the same, except technology is different. Uh, you know, in the in the 90s, Malcolm would sit at home, make me a tape of some guitar parts straight into a, a dictaphone, send me the cassette, and then I would work around that at home. And when we got to the I studio... I would send you the cassette. I'd, I'd, walk, I'd walk over at your house. And well, that's right. Right. You probably gave me it in the pub. That's right. <laughs> Fair dues. <laughs> and, uh, I remember sometimes even playing guitar down a landline phone. Oh, that's <laughs> right. We used to do that. Yes, play down the phone. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when we had no money for... When we ran out of money for cassettes, we just do it live in the phone. That's right. And that... I don't think we ever did anything <laughs> in the same room, maybe once or twice. No, I mean, I think that might be something to do with it. It's where the intimacy and the... And the sound comes from that, you know, Malcolm would record on his own at home and then I would write words at home alone. And then quite often we wouldn't even know what the song was going to sound like until we were in the studio. But that's exactly how we work now, except when Malcolm sends me, it's a a digital file, you know, and it takes seconds to arrive and then I can do so much more to it here and then I can send it back and he can add so much more at his end. So, I mean... You know, fundamentally, it's exactly the same. It's just there's a much better way to do it than there used to be. So, you know, unlike the old days, we've got everything pretty much written before we get to the studio, whereas we did a lot of writing in the studio back then, which is not something you can afford to do anymore. You know, it's an expensive business. So, um, yeah, I think definitely the the writing's a lot tighter because of that, I think, you know, and uh, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse, we've got a lot more time to go over things and worry about them and, and uh, you know, redo them. So I think we've been working on new stuff, actually, and that's part of our, our new work ethic is to n- try and get things done quickly and not worry about them. Because it is, as we are saying, it took a while to write, uh, as I said, over about four years, it took a while to write the last one. So now it's... We're, when we're trying new stuff, we're just trying to get it done really quickly so we can't think about it too much because there's something to be said about that as well. I think there's something about, um, you know, just moving as fast as you can, doing it and finishing it. I'm conscious of, of technology having changed a lot and obviously that that has some, had some impact on the way that you work together, but also the nature of how a lot of people consume music has changed as well. And, I mean, As Days Get Dark came out last year. There's been a couple of B-sides to that album that have since been released this year, have you approached the, I suppose, the craft of producing an album any differently this time around? Do you think about sort of how people might listen to your music and, and what an album might mean today compared to, say, you know, 16 years ago? Personally, I don't know about Aidan, but I'm still kind of stuck in the past. When I think of an album, I still think of side A and side B. And then you can have like a, that idea in your head and also maybe a CD, like the way a CD would flow as well. But um me and Aidan have spoke about this, like for the new songs we're doing, having I'm um, just thinking about styles and stuff because I think we are aware, 
vaguely aware that people m- maybe shuffle songs these days and don't listen to whole albums at once, which is it's not something that I'm... I, I still think of the album as a whole, but we're aware that people might just shuffle playlists and stuff. And I saw a, a tweet yesterday from uh, BBC Six Music, you know, Britain's premier music channel, and, and I couldn't quite believe what it said. It said, hey, what are your favourite albums uh, where you don't have to... Skip any songs, and I found that utterly appalling. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the same as Malcolm. I mean, I, I see an album as uh, something to, to get into. You know, a good album transports you to a, its own world for a good forty minutes to an hour. You know, it can really, really take you somewhere. And I, I, I still think that that's how I, I see records. I mean, yesterday I listened to the. Kendrick Lamar album, and I can't imagine that his record, for instance, it's strange. I think hip hop is one of the the genres who still really value that album as a concept. You know, it takes you somewhere, and there's something really meaty about it. And I mean, it's a really, really heavy record. I mean, talking about his, you know, the abuse of his mother, and you know, and there's a an incredible song in the middle where he's having this really quite eye-watering fight with a, a lady. <laughs> it was, and it's such a big, big event. It's like a film, you know, It's a, there's a, so much to get into. And I think, uh, I mean, hip-hop records, I think, are still very keen on the album format, but certainly I'm quite conscious. And heavy metal, I'd say, as well. Are they? I mean, I'm, I'm not big on the, the metal scene. But what I was going to say, because he started it off with saying a good album, but I think bad albums are also good. Like... When you're wee and you only had like so much pocket money, well, even personally again, like to go and buy an album from like Woolworths record shop or something, you you wouldn't always know what it was going to sound like. And you'd get home and because you'd spent your money, your five pound in it, you would listen to that album inside out. Because this is what I'm saying about it doesn't have to be, you're talking about mm. skipping tracks and stuff. You'd love every minute of the record because you'd paid for it and you're going to listen to it to death. And you'd find wee things like the fourth song inside too that would be a, an amazing hidden track that wasn't a single. And uh, yeah, so even we should maybe make a bad album, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll try our best. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that idea because I was actually listening to the Kendrick Lamar album earlier today, and I 100% agree that that works as as, as a complete work. You mm, know, the tracks yeah. flow into each other and they take you on different journeys and different moods. And I think that's what makes an album properly conceived really special is that it's not just a collection of tracks that it takes you on on a journey mm. um, and there's a, there's kind of a consistency of theme and sound across it and your album sort of absolutely worked in that way for me um, interesting sort of you mentioning uh, being on, on Twitter before um, Aiden, because um, I was sort of you know thinking about this. We're about to have a an election this weekend, so by the time this airs, we would have had the election. There may be a new government at that time, but um, but what is it about Twitter that that you kind of um, that that you enjoy? Because you kind of there's, there's some political content on there. You were posting about Eurovision. Um, <laughs> there's a bunch of different sort of stuff, and you know Twitter can be a pretty nasty place as well. But what is it about engaging on that platform that that you find um, you know in some way worthwhile because there is a track of course on this album bluebird which which i understand yeah. references that platform i mean I, I, to me it's an extension of what i do uh, for a living anyway it's about communicating with people and i think it's good to you know i've i, I have had some great conversations through and I, I think it's a really good tool to to meet people people that you don't 
really know. I mean, I suppose it's for someone like me, it's ideal because you can speak to people, but you can remove yourself as soon as you'd want. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not committing to a relationship. You're just sort of having a chat. It's like it is like being in the pub. You know, it's like uh, bumping into someone at the bar and having a chat. And sometimes, much like being in a bar, it, it uh, sort of expands into ugliness. But I don't, I mean, that hasn't happened too much to me recently. I just don't get engaged in the, the bad stuff as much. I mean, usually if I, if I tweet something political, which is usually just absolutely raging about the Tories over here, which is something that happens on an hourly basis every day right now. I mean, it's incredible to think that the world's getting worse. You know, when I was, you know, 25, I thought I'd seen as worse as it could get after, after the eighties, but here we are. But, um, you know, I tend just not to respond to the replies anymore. I've learned that the best way to deal with Twitter is simply not to engage uh, the people who are trying to attack you and just ignore them, I'm much like I would do in life. <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I, I, so I, but no, and most of it now is I, I stick to the, the fun stuff. It's mostly done a bit with, you know, Apart from the occasional shouts about the Tories, it's usually about music and, as you say, Eurovision and things mm. like that. Sweden should have won that. I mean, I, I I thought that was the best song. I actually couldn't stop humming it all weekend, and I, and I bought it as a single as well. <laughs> Still don't understand why you guys are in it, though. <laughs> no one does. How did that happen? <laughs> no idea. No idea. And I think there's some I sense that, that it's a bit rigged against Australia because, I don't know, the judges don't like us. But, I mean, rightly so. I don't know why we pop up there. I mean, a lot of people here get Yeah, really Britain used to always become, like, one of the last countries. So maybe they've brought Australia in to kind of be a buffer. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. It's maybe the one reason we're still a monarchy, perhaps. I'm not really sure. Of course, the Commonwealth. Yeah, well... The Commonwealth, yeah, yeah right. that's a connection. Yeah, the, the Commonwealth, it's a, an interesting choice for them. All those countries yeah. we took by force, yeah. Musically, you, you referenced that there's there's quite a lot going on in this record. It's not that it's sort of, it's cluttered, but there's lots of different kind of instruments. It's not sort of just guitar vocals and, and drums. You can hear sort of saxophone at various points and, um, and a range of different sounds. How did you approach this musically? I mean, Malcolm, was that something that you came to with a, a particular idea? Of, of the kind of sonic palette you wanted to play around with? Um, no, not at all. I mean, we'd learned a lot in the intervening years since the split up, but um, it, like it was said earlier, it was the same ideas where I'd send Aiden some guitar parts and he'll mess around with drums and vocals, but this time as well he was using different, uh, bringing different samples and stuff to things. So the tracks kind of grew from there, but also I think, I think like sonically it was quite you kind of have a, an inkling of what's too much and what's too little and Paul Savage will tell us that in the studio so it kind of grew from there but obviously now we're reacting against ourselves and we're planning our next record yeah, a yeah. bit more sparse <laughs> and so how far are you into that next re- record? Huh? maybe just uh, not, halfway or something? not fair well, yeah I mean maybe halfway written we did so, we did a few mixes and we were just discussing Discussing what to do. It's interesting because that well, when we're talking about albums, that's one of the things we're thinking now too. I'd, I've been thinking about the idea of sort of walking away from that idea, you know, to try something new, not to make a big heavy album, you know, not to make a an album that requires listening to from start to finish and, and has a story or recurring themes and just, a, you know, making songs uh, piece by piece and just giving them their own individual identity, kind of like thinking of each one as a single, whether or not that makes a, 
a good record. I have no idea. We'll, we'll find out soon enough. But um, yeah, I mean, you can't you can't do two masterpieces in a row anyway. So we're kind of try to relax for this next well, one. But like Ian said, it's like we're treating each song as a song rather than. Mm. I mean, it'll probably come together as an album anyway. But we're thinking of like one song at a time at the minute. So I mean, the way that we're writing, like right now, is the point where I would think we've. I'm about, I'm about halfway through the lyrics, so this is the point in which I would start to think about the themes of the songs that I have and bring it all together and, you know, try and tie everything, and I'm not doing that. And it's kind of liberating, you know, I quite enjoy it. I suppose that's how... I mean, I, that's probably how most people work with songs because people... I, I expect most that the artists don't sit down to make an album uh, as such. You know, you don't... Nobody sits down with it everything planned out because you, you can't work like that everything everything changes there's too many things that can go wrong when you're you're making a record so um, we'll see I mean it could be a complete disaster but well, we'll find out in a, a year or two <laughs> I'm sure it won't be um, and I mean, what what are you finding you're drawing inspiration from at the moment? Because you've spoken before about you know things sort of in in your own life drawing inspiration for I suppose what might be considered the version of you that's presented in the songs, but also lots of different books you're reading and, and little side interests that you have as well. Is there anything particularly flowing through these these new tracks? No, I, I think um, again it's something I might pick up when I'm reading. Like I'm writing, I'm, there's one I've been writing this week that Malcolm hasn't even heard yet, um, which is um. Uh, it, Don't give away your secrets. Oh, well, it, it mentions the. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to mention the the teachings of Epicurus and also uh, references uh, back to the future Lego that I got for my birthday, and you know, so I just just what's sitting about the house and things that I feel that I need to. Uh, that again, because I'm not sitting here thinking about themes. I feel like uh, I can write about anything, which is quite nice, I think. I mean, the ones we have done already, are, one of them, uh, Bliss, it's called, that's about, um, oh, sorry, it's called Call It Bliss. It's That's um, that's about online abuse and things, you know, that, you know, that's what I was feeling that time. And one of the other new ones is back to the sort of the old themes of Arastrap where uh, relationships are dead and dying and, you know, so um, there'll be something yeah. for... And amongst... And amongst all this, I keep getting random texts about can we do can we do this one with no guitars? Can we do this one with less guitars? So maybe maybe the album might have less guitars than normal. So. Yeah, I just I'm, I'm quite consciously doing things that we haven't done before, and I'm quite you know I don't want to just sit and make this comfortable out of strap. Yeah, we'll do an instrumental album then, an instrumental guitar <laughs> piano. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah well it has been um yeah just sort of a, a touch over 20 years ago i think that you last came out to australia as a duo you're coming this time as a band and really lucky to have you in melbourne because i don't think you're doing sort of too many shows in this part of the world but um it is a long way to come what are you looking forward to getting up to when you're in town just rubbing bananas behind my knees <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we've got time to do anything when we come to town we arrived the night before the show uh, and then obviously we've got the gig. We're leaving the day after the show to go to Auckland. We've got a... Uh, it's just, well, uh, we're only... The part of the contract for the festival was an exclusive thing, so we're only allowed to do the one show uh, in Australia anyway. So we're going jumping over to Auckland on the day after the gig, and then we're going to have a day off there and come back to Melbourne, and I think we've got a night off, and then it's pretty much up to Dubai and then waiting for the flight home again. So um, I think the only time 
we'll have any sort of spare time is going to be after the show. So fingers crossed we make a complete mess of ourselves after the gig. <laughs> yeah, well, you've come to the right place. Very, very happy to have you in Melbourne as part of as part of the Rising Festival this year. It's, um, it's going to be brilliant. I'm very much looking forward to it. Zyloris White playing as well, which is great because I've always managed to miss them. And I've been, every time they've been in Glasgow, which I think has only been, I may only been once actually, maybe twice. I'm always doing something else. So it's it's good to good to see we're playing with them. I'm looking forward to that. I was gonna say it's good to come over with a full band and not just last two times I'd strip back and Aye, uh, no. so if anyone from the olden days remembers as well, it'd be good for them to see the band for once. Yeah, we we definitely sound much better now. <laughs> Although that said that that the thing you're talking about on their, their band camp page, the old punters club thing, I, I, there's a, a really there's a, a good sense of and intimacy in those shows. I really enjoyed those that when we were over. But um aye, no, we definitely sound better with a full on band. That's the one where you that's the punters club where you spat in my leg. Because you were singing with your eyes closed and I and yeah, I was sat yeah. on a different side from you than normal. <laughs> and I think you just need to get rid of something in your mouth and you had your eyes closed, you turned around and spat and I was playing the song and just saw this <laughs> thing land in my knee. And uh, like a professional, I just carried on playing. I thought, do I get up and hit him or do I carry on playing? But, um, <laughs> Uh, well, there you go. Well, I had my eyes closed. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. What a memory to hold on to for what, 21 years. I hold on to lots more than that. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been um, such a privilege chatting to you both, Aidan Moffat and, and Malcolm Middleton. I can't wait for you to be out here in Melbourne on June the 3rd as part of Rising Festival down at the Forum, which is um, yeah one of the best venues here in town. So. Enjoy, um, enjoy your trip. Hopefully, it's not too arduous on the uh, what twenty three plus hours or whatever it is um, in the air. But I uh, look forward to catching up with you when you're in Melbourne in a few weeks' time. Cool, nice chat to you. That's it. You've put me off with that twenty three hours. She's <laughs> right. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.